0: Welcome to the sag Foundation's Conversations Podcast. The sag Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag Foundation or access the full library of our conversations, or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sag That's wwws dot foundation. Also subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SegAfterFound. Thanks and enjoy the conversation.
1: Hi. Uh, good evening, as the nice lady told you, my name is Janelle Riley, and thank you so much for joining us for the SEG Conversation with actor, director, writer, all probably does craft services on his movies, <laughs> Kenneth Branagh. Uh, I think most of us first took notice in his Oscar-winning adaptation of Henry V in 1989. Since then, he's gone on to build a very impressive resume uh, in all fields. Uh, he can currently be seen on screens playing Sir Lawrence Olivier in My Week with Marilyn, a performance that has earned him SAG and Golden Globe nominations, and just two weeks ago earned him his fifth Academy Award nomination. welcome Kenneth Branagh. Thank you you very much.
2: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you you very much. Thank you.
1: Uh, Since you're such a great director, I'm a little mortified you had to cross behind me. That was not Uh, good staging on our part. No, we're
0: a little little short on the (laughs) fourth stage here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to show off for a minute. I'm in a suit. I don't normally wear a suit. I'm in a suit because I was at the academy nominees luncheon today which was uh, very nice it was it was very nice um i'd been nominated before but i'd never had a chance to go to the luncheon i'd always been working so this was uh, very exciting it was like a well what i would imagine to be like a high school graduation but it was like it was it seemed only about as many as, as this uh, number of people and everybody got their certificate and everybody got called up to the stage, and uh, it was, I I was, uh, you know, I was standing there, I had this sort of inane grin on my face, just (laughs) cheering, and I looked around, and everybody else had the same inane grin as well, so George Clooney was like that, Brad Pitt was like that, Meryl Streep was like that, and everybody else from, there were, I think, 180 nominees in total, and there were 150 of us were there. So, and actually it was a reminder, you just, people say to me, does it get, you can ask a question in a minute, by the way, (laughs) sorry, Um,
2: people
0: people say, I'm so excited about it, I just wanted to share it, Um, people say, you know, does it get old, and I said, well, of course it doesn't get old, it's just, it's just thrilling, It's, it's very, very exciting, I can't tell you how exciting it is, so I'm... 51 years old and just tickled pink that I was there today. And it was exciting. And at SAG the other week, I was here for the SAG Awards. And, and it was the same thing, particularly, and this is tea, by the way, uh, <laughs> and, uh, um, particularly, and I'm not just saying it because you're, you're all here and we're, and we're here, but I think um, the sort of camaraderie between actors in these situations is quite, uh, is quite sort of particular and uh, it, it's, uh, you know, across this award season, I've noticed this sort of distinctive atmosphere. SAG Awards was definitely a distinctive atmosphere, very unsurprisingly, but very positively and very beautifully uh, celebratory about actors. And today had that feeling of being divorced from some of the kind of, um, uh, you know, tensions or terrors of, of this award season, which is purely about, isn't it great that we were all lucky enough to be in this group knowing that, you know, it doesn't happen that way every time. So it's it's been a very, very, very nice day. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well,
1: that was actually all my questions, so... <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> well, uh, uh, <laughs> it was actually my first question. I wanted to hear about the nominees' lunch. And just out of curiosity, has there been anyone in particular who's come up to praise your performance that has really caught you off guard?
0: Um... Well, it all catches you a bit off guard. I mean, but that happens, frankly. Whoever comes up to you, if they come up to you, you're always surprised, you're always delighted. Um, People say, oh, people are probably always saying this to you all the time. No, they're not. Um, (laughs) And I can give give you a whole batch of reviews that can tell you when they're saying quite the opposite kind of thing. I remember Alan Rickman once giving uh, an introduction to a film that he directed... And he was talking about the poor reception in England. And he said, and we went around the world and we were showered, showered with adulation. And then we came back home and we were showered with quite a different kind of material. (laughs) Um, And so, uh, no, it's never, it's always very nice. And today, it sounds terrible, bloody name dropping. But I feel a bit sort of kid in a candy shop about it. Uh, George Clooney, I was having a natter with today, who I think has done wonderful work this year. An amazing effort as well to have directed as beautifully as he did Ides of March and gives a beautiful performance and then that really exquisite performance in Descendants and uh, so he was very nice about what we did in in my week with Marilyn it was also fun to be there with Michelle Williams Um, just we just get on so well it's a very natural thing and a big thrill for me was uh, Janet McTeer who you you may have seen in Albert She's she's nominated as best supporting actress she gives a a beautiful performance in a film that I loved. I absolutely loved that movie. Um, well, Janet, I've known her since she was 17. We were at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts together. So I saw Janet McTeer. When you may know Janet. She's a very she's tall, very, very beautiful, tall, imposing, uh, wonderful actress. Um, and I remember, it's beautiful to see her there today. I remember her coming into RADA and being rather self-conscious about her height. And um kind of gangly and... and uh, and then I remember in the fifth term there, we all had to do a Greek play. And she played um, uh, Clytemnestra in one, one of the East, part of the Aeschylus um, plays, um, uh, the Agamemnon plays. And uh, it required her to be, you know, a real, to really sort of come out of herself. And one really felt, I, I remember seeing back then when she was 18, thinking, oh, I think I've just seen a star happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, this this girl who was all gangly emerged as this kind of Deverish, beautiful, powerful thing so so to see her there today was that when you could squeeze somebody and say, you know we knew each other when we were up in the green room at Rada, um, you know all kind of starving and you know trying to borrow money to go and see a play that night in the West End <laughs> or something. Or all, do all, we all had odd jobs, we, we used to do things in the summer. I, was, I used, to clean, used to clean the toilets in the uh, St. Martin's School of Art, which was near us, but it was a way of making a few bob, and got you to the theater. Anyway, it was lovely to see Janet McTeer today also. <laughs> 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 Who did not clean toilets. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with that.
1: And how did you hear about your nomination this time around? Uh,
0: I, was, uh, I was on the island, the Channel Island of Guernsey, where I was on a location scout. For a film that i hope to make at some point uh, soon and uh uh it was a text from our director uh, simon curtis who who just said uh i'm so so pleased for you uh and i wondered what it was for a minute because we had lost uh, i thought what have i done and then and then uh <laughs> uh, uh <laughs> i hope it's something nice that he's pleased for me for and then judy Hoffman, my longtime manager from here rang and then uh And then I rang my wife. And so all of this was happening in the middle of a kind of uh, thunderstorm. The rain was kind of sideways at us and it was blowy and it was me and the design. It was weird. It was me and the designer and the producer. And the the usual gaggle of, it's funny, at that end of things when you're doing a a location scout, it's sometimes it's just you, then it's three people. And it's funny to think in this quiet place, in a little while, uh, 200 people will show up and... uh, (laughs) And the circus will come to sound rather like My Week with Marilyn talks about. But so it was, it was good news from friendly people in a windswept place.
1: <laughs> uh, if we can go back to the beginning of your career, when did you realize you wanted to be an actor?
0: Uh, I was 16 and I was in a school play. And uh, uh, I guess, I don't know how you all feel about this, about the business of advice and whether you ever encourage anyone to go into our profession. We all know how tough it is, you know, and uh, when I was thinking that perhaps it might be a good thing to do, I, I, looked, at a, I looked at what the careers service had by way of advice. And uh, it was a piece of paper. I went through this. It was, a, it was about this size um, uh, for a huge school and, in fact, a huge town. And it just began with the words... An empty theatre is a lonely place. Uh, and then it went on. It was very gothic. It went on about when the when the laughter has stopped, when the applause has faded, you will see nothing but empty seats. And you know, if you look behind the tinsel glitter and all the rest, of it, it was basically saying whatever it looks like, it's terrible. You'll never get a job. They're basically saying you'll never get a job. It quoted, I think, in England, 87 percent unemployment um, uh, for actors, and so. My parents were pretty concerned about that. But anyway, a teacher in the school where I was doing a play at 16, I was doing a play called Oh What a Lovely War, which you may know it's an ensemble piece, lots of different parts for lots of different people. It's a beautiful, beautiful play about, uh, that is very anti-war, so it's about the First World War. And uh, I got a chance to show off and do different accents and things, and it all seemed great fun. I don't know how you know, seriously I was doing anything, but I knew it was great fun. And a teacher said, you could do this professionally. And uh, it it really was sort of startling uh, because that seemed like going to the moon, the idea of becoming an actor. I mean, I didn't know. I just couldn't imagine from my background. My dad was a a joiner or carpenter, as you might say. My mum worked in the fish and chip shop around the corner. We were, you know, working class family. No connections to showbiz in any way, shape or form. So I just didn't know what you would do and he said uh, and I said how how would you do that he said well you'd probably go to drama school and uh, what's a drama school and then in the days uh, because I'm so ancient in the days before before the internet that was uh, so you go down to the library and find out about all of that and uh, I found out that there were places in London that were called drama schools and and so it all began I mean he really had uh, the idea that he'd planted was so um swift to kind of take root that um from that point, really, I, I didn't want to do anything else. And as soon as I discovered a little bit about what it might involve and how difficult it would be to get, um, you know, an equity card to become a, an actor on stage, oh, it was, it was, I was indefatigable. I, I just was, it was so clear that, that it was what I enjoyed doing so much. It made me so happy, so happy, still does. It makes me so happy to be an actor um, it's so interesting, it's, it's never, ever, didn't then, and never has ever felt like going to work, um, that uh, I just knew that that's what, that's what I wanted to do, and it didn't matter to what degree I might do it. And I just thought, if I can just at some point get some regular employment, that would be fine, and I'll practice it any other way. I had no other ambitions beyond trying to get a job. I thought, if I could have a job as an actor, a professional actor... Uh, I'd be absolutely made up. Um, there's nothing nothing about, or nothing about, beyond that, really, other than because it was already so strange. I thought it would just be wonderful, and it turned out to be.
1: And you were accepted into the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts, you I mentioned. Was, yeah. uh, what was the process like to get into that school?
0: Uh, you had to send off your, uh, what was it, I think it was about six pounds, about $12 back then for your... your audition registration fee, your non, non-returnable fee. Um, for then you were sent something said, please come and do a speech from Shakespeare and a speech from a modern play. And I did the uh, bastard speech from Edmund in King Lear, thou nature art my goddess to thy, uh, can't think of the word, someone would remind me, uh, my services abound, etc. which I think had been done by more or less every other candidate, so the eyes glazed.
2: <laughs> I'm going to
0: do Edmund from King Lear. Uh, <laughs> And, uh, I did, uh, and then I did a speech of Mix from the caretaker, Harold Pinter's the caretaker. Uh, one of his sort of uh, intimidating uh, um, pinteresque uh, uh, speeches. And uh, I think that was also much done. I did that in the morning for two people. Um, th- I got the audition date about three months before. And I don't think I slept uh, much before that. I was so excited to go up to London and, and not mess it up. I went in in the morning and then in the afternoon they called you back. And, and so I auditioned in front of two people. There were a panel of people of auditioning. In the afternoon I auditioned before eight of them. So that the rest of that had already been a kind of cull. And uh, we were brought back. And then the first sort of introduction to show business was at the, the top floor of RADA and someone coming in. I don't know if you've all had experiences like this where and you never know how to read it. They come into a room and they read a group of names out. And you don't know whether those names are the ones leaving or they're the ones staying. And so everyone's sort of like that, you know, and other people are tragic. And then, and then they say, and all of you, lot, you, yeah, you can go. And then everybody else. And that's actually what, what happened. They did it as, you know, as best they could. It's just a horribly ruthless thing. And then I had to go back. And, um, and, and uh, the principal of RADA, uh, Hugh Cropwell, who became a great mentor and was, worked on most of the films that I directed that I was in. Uh, He wanted me to come back and he felt he he said uh, that he felt I was a performer and not an actor. yet, And that I had to come back. And uh, in fact, I came back and uh, he asked me to do the uh, Edmund speech, the very one I've just mentioned, but this time do it as do it as a punch drunk East End boxer. And uh, and so I didn't really know what he meant. I thought, well, I, you know, so I sort of went to the back of the room, and then I and then I came came forward and started doing this and said, "Thou, nature, art my goddess." So Today, and he said, "He said, no, no, no. That's the problem. That's what I'm talking. Indication, just indicate it. You know, I'm not saying do boxing movements. Just <laughs> somehow take yourself to another." Think of you know be somewhere else, different kind of person. It was an interior thing that he was talking about, but I did that, and I did, I did uh, the gentleman caller speech from the glass menagerie, um, and uh, and then and then he offered me, they offered me a place, and then I had to. I don't know how it works here now. But back then, amazingly, there was a possibility that your entire education would be paid for by the government. And indeed, in my case, it was. So there was what was called a mandatory grant. If you got into university and did a degree, then because you would paid your taxes, then you were there. And it was fees and maintenance were paid for the entire three years. Well, it was just reaching the point where that wasn't true of arts, arts vocational courses, because I got a diploma. It wasn't a, it wasn't a degree. So... It was seven terms, and I suppose it added up to about, you know, back then, a lot of money, about 6,000 quid, which is, you know, $10,000 or whatever. And um, I had to audition for my local council. Having got the place at RADA, I then had to audition with other people who were trying to get money for foundation courses, for, for, you know, fine art courses, people who were in dance, people who were painting. So we all, we, I don't know how they ended up sort of trying to... Um, kind of present themselves in that way, but I auditioned for them, and then uh, six months later, I in fact got all of that covered. So, and I certainly wouldn't have been able to go if I hadn't. But all of my fees and all of all of the maintenance was paid for um, as part of, as it were, what my parents had paid for in their taxes. So that was amazing. And about the last point at which that happened, um, and indeed that you know isn't automatic now for anybody going to university in the UK either, which is a great shame. But anyway, I was very, very lucky.
1: That might have been the most important audition of your life, if you think about it.
0: Yeah, it was, you didn't, again, you didn't know, it's a funny old thing about auditioning, isn't it? You, you, um, hard to know uh, quite, you know, whether you, you're trying to show off, you're usually doing two pieces and, you know, in the crudest terms, you're trying to do the flashy one and the subtle one, the loud one, the quiet one, the funny one, the dramatic one, and... Uh, you know, and often they all mel- meld into one anyway, you know, because you think as you're doing it, I better show them I can do this as well. And then you end up just being loud. Um, what was he? Well, I could really hear him. Um, uh, so I guess I was uh, I was uh, luck- lucky and... Uh, what's that phrase? Are you just... Somehow you've got to find a way to just sort of be honest because they, they can smell fear. That's that line in broadcast news, isn't it? If only... If only desperate and needy were turn-ons. Um, uh, and unfortunately, they're not. Here.
1: So did you ever ask Hugh um, if he, you gave that audition for him and you were indicating how, but he knew you were an actor, not a performer. Did he know in that moment or did he uh, think that he could teach you?
0: i tell you why he told me he thought I was an actor is because I started drying. I started losing my lines, uh, which I found very throwing. He said, that's it. That's all I needed to see. I said, well, you, all you needed to see was me forgetting the words. <laughs> uh, he said, no, that means you're in the moment. That means you are now not preparing. You are now open to this encounter. Uh, you, you're just, you are just reacting. And because you don't know what's happening and you don't quite know what the words are, you're not that familiar with them, uh, you are, uh, you're, you're in the moment, you're being real. So, um, and that was in itself was a kind of um, a shock to the system to sort of see it from that point of view. Um, so, yeah, that, that's why he believed that that uh, was evidence of me having that possibility, at least.
1: So the next time you forget your lines, it just means you're an actor.
0: I think it means, it can mean you're big. Sometimes it means you didn't learn your lines. Sometimes, <laughs> uh, but sometimes it means, yeah. It's an interesting thing, that not it, about um, what, I mean, more and more and more I find myself interested in... Um, how difficult it is to give the impression as an actor of complete spontaneity, and reality, and naturalism, if that's what the style of the piece requires, if you even think about it in those terms, um, and how you can do that and get out of the way, how you really, really can speak like you know, like we're speaking now, as it were, and not and, and get the acting out of the way, whether it's Shakespeare or whether it's. Uh, it's um, you know, a naturalistic thing. And, uh, yeah, on the way to that, sometimes, you know, forgetting it or appearing to forget it is is a good thing. But anyway, it's all... I find it's more and more of a mystery the more I do it. But it's fascinating.
1: And at Rotterdam, do they teach a specific method or is it like a combination of several ideas? The, the,
0: The great thing about the training, as far as I was concerned, is that we were exposed to every kind of director. So, um... Uh... There was, um... To give you, this is a kind of broad example, but there's a kind that we'd have a sort of Stanislavski type director. We did a production of Three Sisters where we spent nine weeks and we, uh, you've probably done all this, actioned every single word. You know, so if I come in (laughs) and I say good morning, the action on the line has to be he welcomes Natasha. You have to have an absolute written out intention. Could be. He hates Natasha. You're still saying good morning, but you you register what this intention is. So you do that for the entire text. And we were very rigorous with that. In fact, by chance, I'm re- I don't know why I'm doing it, but I, I know why I'm doing it. I'm rereading Stanislavski right now uh, um, because someone gave me a very nice edition of it. And of course, that it's so brilliant. It's so completely and utterly useful and practical and contemporary. So we had, amongst others, we had somebody, uh, a director. We, we We were doing plays in front of an audience from the very second term that we were there. So we were very exposed to audiences. They believed that you needed to do it in front of people, that it wasn't so much. This is different from other drama schools in London who said, let's, in broad terms, let's keep it inside. Break you down is what some people said for a a couple of years and then we'll build you back up and we'll send you out into the world. And Ours was the other way around and it was exposure to different kinds of techniques. So we had that very extreme Stanislavski technique and then the other end of it was people like... uh, the woman who on day one we started doing this play, an English period play, and by the middle of the first afternoon, we we we'd kind of blocked it all out. I mean, nearly nearly all of it was blocked out, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, which was a surprise to some actors, including one who said um, had a bit of a tantrum in the you know, or a moment in the middle of the first afternoon and felt was being rushed and yeah. you know, and just said, look, I just you know, I uh, I just you know, we've done everything. I just I just look, I you know, I, I don't I don't know where my, I don't know where I'm coming from. And there was a pause, and then the director said. You're coming from upright. You're walking down to the table here. Then you're crossing over to the other the other chair, um, and so you had that. And then you had various people in between. We used to we had to do restoration comedy. We had to do Greek plays. We had a very very wide ranging thing, which I found very um, helpful. Um, and uh, I mean, we still had lots of. Um, you know, internal things. We had to do something called a standard English test, where you had to, as it were, have at your disposal a neutral tone of voice, a, a, um, a sort of newsreader English, as we might say, a sort of BBC English. Uh, it, that's to say you could have that at your disposal even if you were naturally speaking in a regional accent. Um, that used to be very sort of, you know, Complicated and it made people feel they were being judged and everything. We had something called stand-up and entertain where you had to come and do two minutes in front of the rest of the academy. You just had to, you had to do something different. People would do songs, they write things, they do stand-up comedy. We did our stage fight evenings. We did something called the tree evening where the business was invited to see us do a couple of sort of showcase pieces and lots of things like that. All of it, quite a kind of uh, uh, microcosm of, of the, the business, full of knocks and falling down and getting ups but it was I thought really a a good education for an actor
1: and how soon upon graduation did you start getting jobs in in the industry I got a job
0: uh, through uh, the newspaper The Stage I don't know if you're familiar with it it's a a, um, uh, uh, The Stage and Television today it's called and uh, still very much uh, alive and kicking it's where uh, actors used to get a lot of work and there was an advert in my just before I went some to start my last term at RADA for a television play with an actor who required an authentic Belfast working class accent it said who needed to be between 16 and 20 and uh, I, I... it said send send your cv and your and your photograph to uh, uh an address in london and uh i only had one photograph and it was on the it was on the wall at, at Radha where they had to, had to be and i didn't even a cv i mean you know i so i i, I made something up and like like you do i was a little bit a little economical with the truth about uh, but all, all the parts that i'd played um uh and uh I don't know, what you, whatever you add when you're 19 or 20, things that I'd liked seeing, you know, uh, <laughs> pic, pictures I'd enjoyed,
2: that kind of thing.
0: And then I, uh, I went up to, I was staying with my parents at the time, and I went up to London. And I took the single photograph and the made-up CV across to this office at, at BBC Television Centre. And uh, to my amazement, they rang up the next day. Obviously, they had a very limited number of people (laughs) they could see because, you know, it needed to be somebody young. Um, So I went in and eventually got the job. And and, uh, Rada let me, I was pulled out of a, they let me go do it for one month during my final term back in my hometown of Belfast. So uh, strangely enough, I I was pulled out of a production of a flea in Hurria, Fado's A Flea in Hurria. In which I was going to play the role of Etienne, the waiter, which was a role that Laurence Olivier played in a famous production of uh, Flea and Heria uh, at the National Theatre in, uh, in 1967. Yeah, so weird little wheels within wheels.
1: Didn't you actually write Olivier while you were at Rada? You had, I did. had a communication with him?
0: during that very production of Three Sisters in which I was actioning away to little effect um, because I was uh, sort of 45 years too young to play um, <laughs> che, <laughs> che, che, che Boutique in The Doctor. Uh, he's the one who sits on the bench at the end and sings tara ra dee it's wonderful. He has a great scene in the third act where he smashes a clock um, and uh, gets cross, gets drunk and uh, has that lovely line about you can say what you, say what you like but loneliness is a terrible thing and uh, seems a Harder to do when you're 19, when to sort of carry that bit of the weight of the play. But but I, I basically, you know, I, I put some essentially put some flour in my hair and sort of it up a bit and tried did the bad bad old acting and just like I've yet to see an old per, what's an old person? But I've yet to see someone a senior person who does the kind of walking that I was doing, which was completely out of my own uh, maybe, you know handbook of bad acting uh, techniques. Um, And so in the midst of... uh, I remember just, uh, you know, walking all night and standing in front of the mirror looking at me doing my thing with my flower and everything and thinking, this is so bad. So bad. (laughs) I'm going straight to the top. So... I wrote to Sir Lawrence Olivier and said, "Help me, please." <laughs> Was there anything that you listened to? Was there a piece of music? Was there a poem you read? Was there a film you saw? Was there anything that I could go and look at, and maybe I could get back to getting this interior that I don't—that I'm missing by one million miles. I, frankly, I'm missing the exterior as well. But. <laughs> but, but, but. <laughs> it's not looking so bad next to the, the hollow shell of the interior. So I wrote to him, and, and he said, "There is nothing that I can tell you to, to help you with this. Uh, it's really something you have to find out for yourself." He said, "But uh, my advice is to have a bash and hope for the best," uh, which I certainly wish you. That's that's what he said. So, and actually, when it came to when it came to doing the the film, uh, I wrote it on a little note and put it at the top of my mirror, so I'd see that piece of advice every day when I was being cheeky enough to try and be him.
1: <laughs> uh, just out of curiosity, where did you get Laurence Olivier's address?
0: <laughs> in the who's who of the theatre. A, a volume this this thick, again, from the library. And, uh, and at the end, it listed, you know, uh, habits, uh, enjoyments, pastimes, uh, London address. And he gives his London home address because that's what you did in this sort of old world of gentleman actors because no one's going to be as crass as to show up or... Right, uh, except
2: uh,
0: I didn't realize you put the address in, but you don't write to them, you know. But I did, you know. But frankly, I'm sure that's why I got an answer because, uh, you know, not many people did. But it was, yeah, it was the, uh, at the end of the of this. You imagine his entry in who's who in the theatre was like twelve pages, listed every play he'd ever been in, every part he'd ever played. Um, but at the end, another sort of old-fashioned part of it was it listed the clubs to which he belonged, which is a very oldie-worldie English actor thing, you know, belonging to the Garrick Club or the Savile Club or whatever. And weirdly, his, his home address, so that's, I've got it out of a book.
1: <laughs> that you found at a library, mm. again. Yeah. Uh, I know the, te- the term big break is kind of a misnomer, but what do you sort of consider your, your big break in the industry?
0: Uh, well, that play, that television play, was was a great, great part um, at a time when a new play written by a very fine Irish writer called Graham Reid was playing on prime time television in the middle of the week with just uh, three channels, four channels then, just four terrestrial channels. So you had a chance to be seen in something like that, a new piece of writing you know, by a couple of million people. You know, because it was on the telly, and there was, you know, that there wasn't the competition of everything that there is now. So that was an enormous break. And then, to obviously to get the chance to go to the Royal Shakespeare Company um, when I was uh, I was only twenty three, and uh, to play Henry V was 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 quite quite something to uh, um, to get the opportunity to audition for them, to even be thought about. Um, and just that, actually, that I remember auditioning on the stage of the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, uh, you know, 1,500 seats, and, uh, which goes all the way. It's very, very steep at the top. They've just rebuilt it, but it's very and full of ghosts, full of, you know, uh, the home to many amazing performances, including many by uh, Sir Lawrence and Gielgud and that, that generation. And then, and then latterly by the Derek Jacoby's and Ian McKellen's and the Judi Dench's and, So to be on that stage, actually, I remember it reminded me of that very careers uh, notebook or sheet of paper that said a theater is an empty, uh, empty theater is a lonely place. (laughs) I found it to be a very exciting place. So to be on an empty stage just one guy out there, the director of Henry V, um, as it was going to turn out to be, um, and to be able to, you know, to just stand there and say, you know, once more onto the breach or whatever was pretty Thrilling. I just thought, if nothing else, I'm standing where all those other people stood. How, uh, it was pretty. I, I was, I've always was, and always have been affected by the sort of chills down the spine connection to all, all the others that do what we do. And um, so it was. It, that was an enormous break to go there and, and play that part.
1: Did you do your Edmund monologue for the audition?
0: <laughs> I did not. I think that I realised uh, that. Uh, if you run the Royal Shakespeare Company, you've probably seen that a few times. I think I did Lord Foppington from The Relapse. Uh, I don't know if you know that play uh, by Vanbrugh. Um, very, very foppish character. So I decided I would just go for a very flamboyant. I think I used a handkerchief. I think I used props. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, when I went for funny uh, for that one, the big funny bit. Uh, and then I did the, um, for them... I did the uh, the Hotspur speech from uh, Henry the Fourth. My liege, I did deny no prisoners, um, which I did. Again, it sounds, I'm enslaved to this guy, but I did it because uh, um, having a, a limited imagination, then and now, I had read that uh, in playing that part, that Laurence Olivier, when he played Hotspur, had learned that the character had a stutter, uh, historically had a stutter, and so he used it at various, um, various points, including, uh, the very last line of Hotspur as he speaks to, uh, Prince Hal, soon to be Henry V, who's defeated him. Uh, uh, the line, I believe, someone will correct me, but I'm paraphrasing. He said, I-, I-, I will be food for worms, Harry. And he made Hotspur's stutter on, on the W so that it is very dying line. He said, I'm food for, w- 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 w-, and, hot- and ha- Prince Hal finishes it with a very nice touch. But it allowed me when I did the, uh, no prisoners speech to uh, There was a line in it Where he goes my, li- my liege I did deny no prisoners But I remember when the fight was done When I was dry With rage and extreme toil Breathless and faint Leaning upon my sword Came there a certain lord Neat and trimly dressed Fresh as a bridegroom And his chin new reaped Showed like stubble land At harvest home uh, for, uh, Blah 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 and He gets to the <laughs> middle of it um, he goes on forever, I can tell you, uh, about the fellow who's come and annoyed him. And the, the, the line in the middle goes, for he made me mad to see him shine so sweet and smell so like a waiting gentlewoman and talk of guns and drums and wounds, God save the mark. So it allowed me in the middle of that speech to go, for he made
2: me mm, 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 mm,
0: mad to see him shine so brisk and smell, which was very effective for the audition. So I did that and Lord Foppington, and they gave me the part.
1: Wow. <laughs> Thank you. And at this point, how familiar were you with Shakespeare? I mean, I'm sure you'd studied him at RADA, but had you done many of his plays?
0: I had not. My first uh, Shakespeare was in an amateur production of Othello, in which I played the role of Cassio. Um, and uh, I enjoyed it very much. I had a, I had a, a sort of affinity for, for it. I mean, by which I mean I, I simply enjoyed it. I enjoyed reading it. I didn't always understand it, still don't always understand it. <laughs> Uh, the first time I was exposed to it was in school being asked to stand up and read along the rest of the class at various points The Merchant of Venice, which really didn't make any sense to me at all <laughs> And um, not, I'm not sure it does now, really I'm not sure it does now But uh, uh, And then I went to see a production of Romeo and Juliet, which was very exciting I remember Juliet being very, very uh, appealing And uh, <laughs> I enjoyed that uh, and uh, and then we had to study various plays. I remember we had to study uh, at school when I was between sixteen and eighteen, doing what we call the A levels. Um, Much Ado About Nothing and Antony and Cleopatra. We went to see Antony and Cleopatra. I saw Glenda Jackson as Cleopatra in, in Stratford, and um, and 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 I think I saw Much Ado at that time. And and in all the cases where there was a good production, or even an indifferent production but with good actors, uh, I was very I, I, I Enjoyed very much when it came alive, and when, as it were, it seemed like they were just making it up. And I was amazed by the way they did it, and sometimes by what uh, what appeared to be the naturalness of the writing. And a, a wonderful thrill for me when I played Benedict in Much Do About Nothing on stage, um, which I did for about a year uh, in advance of the uh, of the picture that we made. Um, and occasionally, people would come round backstage and say that to me that you've made some of it up, which was. Uh, hopefully a good night for me, but it was mostly, of course, the fact that Shakespeare, who wrote most of it in prose, wrote in this very, very still contemporary-seeming way, and yet with such intelligence and colour that his writing prose was poetry in itself. And if you did deliver it with, if you just hit the spot, it was very, 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 very beautiful. Um, So I I always felt that about it. I felt moved by it it when it worked well and also perplexed by it when it didn't. So I was, especially, I suppose, coming from a, and I don't mean this in any sort of martyrish way. There weren't any books in our house. My, my parents were both bright people, just didn't read books. They went to the library and they read newspapers and they read magazines and we watched the telly. You know, it wasn't a, we weren't a great literary household. So, and we had a sort of slight working class suspicion of um, uh, people who were cleverer than us. Well, not suspicion, but somehow there was a sense of uh, uh, sometimes feeling that they were... Uh, they were smarter or there was something they knew that we didn't know. And so when it came to Shakespeare, when uh, when it really worked for me, I felt as though I wanted to share that with people like me who might otherwise feel excluded. They might feel they have to have to gone to university to understand Shakespeare. Uh, not not that there's anything wrong with that, but just that there was some secret other way of doing it other than whatever it might be, a lovely performance or a great, or you read it and it speaks to you or some other connection with it. And it gave me a kind of um, passion to want to, uh, you know, spread my uh, uh, share my kind of enthusiasm and also my struggle to sometimes understand, you know, what he meant and, and, and what the plays meant. And also with how with that sort of balance between one loves it on the one hand. And yet, frankly, I have seen it done so badly. I've been involved in doing it so badly sometimes that uh, when it doesn't work, it's so appalling it is. It's like watching paint dry. Uh, when when you, you do bad production of Shakespeare, it makes you want to, you know, lose. You lose the will to live in that. And, and when it and when it works, it, it's sort of transcendent, you know. So so, but somehow the difference it seems so minuscule, but the results are uh, incredible. And Jesus, well, I put, you know, I've sent people to sleep uh, in the in the theatre doing it. But uh, and sometimes we we we've done better than that, yeah.
1: Uh, the original Henry V was... Dir- well, not the original, obviously. <laughs> yeah, <laughs>
0: which I didn't see. I don't know. Uh,
1: the, the one that you starred in was directed by Adrian Noble. Yes. How did you come to direct and star in a film version? <laughs> uh,
0: sometimes I wake up in the night and I ask myself the same question. <laughs> I was running a theatre company. I came away from the Royal Shakespeare Company passionate about working in companies. I was very passionate about about the family of a, of a, of a theatre company. And uh, I liked the... Um, I loved the RSC in many ways, but the scale of it uh, made me feel sometimes that there was a kind of impersonal element. I wanted it just to be smaller. And that thing that we saw with audiences simply enjoying an actor being you know in this play in this part one night and in a different play and in another part and enjoying that part of what actors do the sort of chameleon side of it I wanted to enshrine in a smaller way in our little company and we took it on the road and we and we made it very much an actor's company and these uh, we, we we'd done two or three plays to start the company's life off which were uh, fairly disastrous I wrote a play which six people saw called Public Enemy and uh, <laughs> I put some money into it lost all of it um, and then we did a play about the life of napoleon by a brilliant uh uh, solo performer called john sessions and then we started to get lucky we did a production twelfth night which went well and then we did this three-play season with plays much ado about nothing directed by judy dench uh hamlet directed by Derek Jacobi, and as you like it directed by geraldine McEwan, all of whom had been in these plays before and it also felt to me that the character of the company could partly be about just passing on Great actors passing on their, their knowledge of uh, the plays and parts to, to younger actors, and, and some interchange going on that would be good. We toured with those plays, it was an amazing experience um, uh, but to be directed by uh, Judy Dench, who's uh, uh, well, all of them, you know, and uh, Derek Jacobi to get notes on, 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 on Hamlet from him. Uh, which mostly, and he, he's one of my dearest friends, so he, I, I would say this if he was here, but he, mostly his direction consisted of getting up and saying, let me do it, let me do it for you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. uh, no, not like that,
2: not like
0: that. No, 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 no. To be or not to be. Um, okay, all right, I'll do it though. Um, uh, uh, or Judy Dench, bracingly frank in her appraisal, um, uh, uh, just coming around and, and saying, oh, Kenny, that was awful. no it really was it was awful it was awful but you know that don't you
2: Uh, not
0: not so much Dame Judy Uh, um, but these plays were seen by a man called uh, Stephen Evans who was a a freelance stockbroker who'd had several careers uh, 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 that had been successful and unsuccessful and he was on a a high at this point and he wanted to get into the film business or, or into the Uh, You know, the the world of the arts, a very intelligent fellow and very, uh, very culturally was very widely read and and, uh, went to movies and theater and stuff. Anyway, he he rang up and I remember uh, um, uh, uh, someone said to me once, always take all your calls for Christ's sake. This is an example. (laughs) I get a call where at the Riverside Studios in Hammersmith, we've had this disastrous play of mine. We're in the middle of a disastrous preview period for the Napoleon play. It's dying, dying, dying. Um, and the technical is a nightmare. It's just not my specialist area of knowledge. I'm directing it, but I don't really know what I'm doing. And I go to have a cup of coffee, and somebody who works behind the the, uh, 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 the cafe says, There's yeah. a guy I've been calling for called Stephen Evans. Like, oh, who, who I know? Oh, oh. And then I, I take i take the call uh I, so i don't know who you are he said well i'm interested uh, oh yeah um wh- whatever i come on monday morning uh at 10 o'clock and i forgot all about it <laughs> and uh, just i needed to get back into the disaster that was our technical <laughs> rehearsal and so then I, i'm going back for another coffee on the monday morning and this and i see this guy in front of me and um so I'm looking for Kenneth Brown or whatever. I go, oh Christ, it's him, oh Jesus, this is like he's a nut, he's like a mad fan or something, some kind of he just, he's a crazy person. I so I run back, so I don't tell him who I am, and I run back into the theatre and I say to David Parfum, that guy, I forgot about the guy going to see him, but don't, lad, don't bring him in for Christ's sake. And so I thought, phew, I never do that again. Don't take the calls and just I don't know this guy. So then I'm directing away, and they just come. To, I'm, I'm at the back of the stores, and I see them. Just David and, and uh, David now, Oscar winning David Parfitt. He 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 um, he is with Stephen down there, and uh, they come in and they go out, and I've hardly seen them. And, I, and then David comes back in, and I said, "Oh, thank God for that." Sorry to lumber you with that. I don't know who this guy is, and he shows me this piece of paper. I said, "What's that?" He said, "It's a check for ten thousand pounds." <laughs> I said, "You're joking." Because we were, we, were, we, we were already way behind. We were in, in debt for the next production that we were in. I said, and who's that? I said, for us. He's written he, That's it. That's ours now. So you're
2: joking.
0: £10,000? He said, yeah. And I, and I told him about your crazy plan to direct Henry V, and he'd like to produce it.
2: Where is he? Where is he? <laughs> bring, bring him back. Bring him back.
0: I, I just... I, let me buy you a coffee. Uh, so,
2: <laughs> so... uh
0: I don't know. Take your calls and don't be as stupid as I was. But anyway, thank God. Persistent man who hung on uh, despite being uh, um, casually treated by my, oh, it's also too difficult kind of attitude. And so he he um, he decided that uh, that, uh, even though the conversation began, what do you want to do? I'd love to direct a film of Henry V. Really, how much have you directed uh, I haven't directed. He said, "No, no, but how, how many actual films? I haven't directed any films. Uh, short film. I haven't directed any short films. Um, but you want to direct? Yes, I do. Um, and so, if that's those are the conversations I have late at night. Uh, I found after the play. <laughs> not that I recommend this. I'm not saying this, please. Uh, but I was a little bit drunk on those occasions. Um, <laughs> enough to go. And then the camera would do this, you know, <laughs> and this, and then, you know the kind of uh, whatever." camera's on a crane my arm's a crane right so the camera would do this uh, and i don't know he maybe i was just very careful about filling his glass at the same time but he decided that he would uh he would go for it and then we had this amazing sort of up and down journey of he pulled in favors and we were going to have it was going to happen it wasn't and david putnam lord putnam Oscar winning david putnam was involved for a bit uh who produced chariots of fire the movie he was involved and i remember him calling me in not long before it eventually happened. And uh, he said, I've got to tell you, uh, you should stop now. Uh, this film will collapse. It will mm. collapse either two weeks before or two weeks after principal photography begins. But that it will collapse is absolutely certain. And your career as an international film type, such as it might be, will be over. Will be over. So please take my advice. So we didn't take his advice. Um, LAUGHTER and he wrote the sweetest card when he saw the movie uh, about a year later saying, well, you know, what did I know? Well, he knew a lot and we were hanging on by the by the seat of our pants. But somehow Stephen, with incredible force of character and personality, uh, and David, both of them were the reasons that picture got made.
1: Do you think that maybe your lack of directing film experience actually paid off in a way? Because uh, you thought you could do all these things?
0: <laughs> well, I suppose... I mean, secretly, obviously, I woke up in the night and thought, what
1: am I
2: doing?
0: <laughs> but I did feel, uh, i did feel I, it was simple, unalloyed enthusiasm for the play and for its capacity to work in a different way from Olivier's classic as a movie. Just a feeling, I'd played it, uh, I'd played the character, I don't know, uh, over a hundred times with the Royal Shakespeare Company. I had a feel, feel, feel for the character such as, as it was um, and I felt as though... I was seeing that story in pictures and that I was able to uh, convey those pictures. And from the second job that I did, which was a third job, sorry, second television job I did, which was a film by a very fine director called Colin Gregg, an adaptation of Virginia Woolf's novel To the Lighthouse. and I played a character called Charles Tansley. So I was 21 and it was the first time on a sort of proper film-seeming set where just as a matter of course, uh, I asked these guys what they were doing, as it were, and said, what, I mean, I asked the simple basic questions, what is this wheel, what is this guy doing at the side of the camera he keeps, and he keeps using his tape measure, what's all that about? Well, that's a focus puller, and he's pulling focus, and that keeps you sharp, et cetera. I asked about what, you know, camera track was, and why they changed lenses, and uh, so I suppose from that point onwards, I had always, always been nosy about how it was being done, um, and uh, the combination of those things, and a fantastic amount of ignorance, ignorance and energy, can get you a, a long, a long way. I think. Um, uh, and all, it's, uh, Orson Welles once once said that if you're going to make films, I suppose he had this experience with Citizen Kane. Uh, it, you know, it is good to either have a complete knowledge or no knowledge at all. Um, and I suppose I was definitely on the on the on the other side of that. But I did. I I had a very strong point of view, I suppose, even if it was to others must have seemed incredibly arrogant or. But for me, there was I felt the same way about it as I'd felt way back when I just knew that I wanted to be an actor. So it would. So there was something honest and pure about the intent, which was to tell the story. It was not I must do this in order to become a famous person or whatever. I just wrapped up in making a film of Henry V. That's what it was.
1: Which, I mean, obviously, if you want to become a famous Hollywood star, an adaptation of Henry V is the way to go. (laughs) were you surprised by how much it was embraced internationally?
0: Astonished, absolutely astonished. Uh, I knew that we'd had an amazing time doing it, and I have wonderful, wonderful memories of directing people like uh, Paul Schofield and just seeing all those people together they were all there for the read-through it was the only film I've ever done where every single actor was there for the read-through imagine what that crowd was like that was a that was a big room to play to that was a fairly amazing experience and uh, and we yeah we didn't really know we didn't know it was really didn't even know at the time quite quite how I remember coming here to promote it and I met Whoopi Goldberg met Patrick Stewart very kindly introduced it one time when we were here in, at the beginning of 1990, um, just running up to the Academy Awards. Uh, or maybe it was even before that, and before any of that had happened. Patrick I knew, I'd worked with when I was a young actor. And I'd seen, in fact, that very production of Antony and Cleopatra, I alluded to, had Patrick Stewart as a brilliant Ina Barbas. Um, and uh, so he, he introduced it here for a screening. Whoopi Goldberg was there. And we were talking afterwards and uh, and she said, there was a little pause. She said, you have no idea what you guys have done, have you? You've no idea how much this picture means to us, you know. Um, uh, we shouldn't talk about America, but this particular group of uh, people. And uh, and we didn't. We didn't accept um, that then and, and, and since, you know. One is always amazed um, and, and uh, impressed by what really is doing the job in that instance, which is William Shakespeare, who simply, he's the one that is, that is the, the, the element in all of this that knocks people's socks off. But we were the lucky vessels through which his genius travelled on that particular occasion. And, and so we benefited from people rediscovering a magnificent piece of work uh, that we happened to interpret and get lucky with.
1: And did Hollywood start come calling immediately after that? Did everybody want you for their movies?
0: No, no. Uh, it never quite happens like that. I don't. I don't think. Uh, but it was. I mean, it was very, very exceptionally exciting. And um, uh, but it, what came uh, next was was a, a film called Dead Again, which arrived. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, a a, a script I remember, with many fingerprints on it. That's how I, Many, many, many people have turned it down uh, because it's a sort of quirky, rather eccentric story about, involving reincarnation. But I thought it was an excellent piece of writing. And Scott Frank, who wrote it, has since written many very fine screenplays and become a, a very good friend, uh, was an exciting collaborator, as was uh, Lindsay Duran, who produced it. They were a very impressive pair. And I felt... Um, uh, you know that they would be they would they 'd be wonderful to work with, and then I had the probably the the, fir- <laughs> the first and only sort of conversation that I remember even then I remember laughing about as I, I had to have a moment yeah, you may not believe this, but I did have to have a moment where I had to persuade Paramount Pictures that it would be a good idea to cast Emma Thompson uh, in the part the the two double parts opposite me, which I think there was some suspicion of nepotism because we were then married. And I said, uh, I said, well, I can understand how you might feel that way. But nevertheless, I am here to tell you, regardless of what the future may bring, that at some point you will be on your knees to try and get a woman like this into your picture. Okay. So um, please cast her because she's a, you know, copper bottomed star and a talent of the first rate. And uh, uh, she ought to be in this and many other movies. So they, they were easily persuaded. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um. It's, is, was that the first time that you had to do an American accent because you play uh, an American detective, and then you also play, obviously? I, I,
0: yes, on film. I did one. Uh, uh, I did it in a, in a drama school. We did a play co- co- called uh, "No Orchids for Miss Blandish." I don't know if you know. There's a film, very violent film, but it's a it's a gangsterish story, um, and I played an American, uh, Eddie Schultz in that. And I guess I pr- started practicing. Then and so when, when it came to Dead Again, where I played this double part, an American detective and then a, a, a German um, uh, composer uh, uh, of, of the forties uh, in the backs in this sort of parallel um, story in the past. Uh, I uh, in, in the run up to the, the shooting, I would uh, uh, at the weekends particularly uh, go go around LA, you know, going to a restaurant or going to the pictures or whatever uh, as an American. So I'd try out the accent and then was was reminded about how so many people from here come from somewhere else. You know, so so it was, uh, uh, you know, you try and do this accent to somebody who was selling some popcorn and realize that, that, you know, they were from Austria or they were from somewhere else or whatever. But uh, uh, I I enjoyed I enjoyed doing it very much.
1: And how do you direct yourself when you're appearing in a movie? Do you have someone who's like a second set
0: of eyes for you? Yes, Hugh Crupwell was that for, for many, uh, many pictures. And then, you know, uh, Emma obviously knew me very well and uh, would not be shy and about saying stuff. And, no, and I would expect that. And actually, one of the stranger things that surprises people is if you direct yourself in something, you know, you still, uh, you know, ret- have a vulnerability. You got, you know, um, uh, you, you know, you, you have to have the appropriate skin sensitivity to be to be open and change or at least I think so from take to take and actually although yes you have the job we do a scene together and then I step outside it when we say cut and I say would you like to do it a bit more like this or this or have you can you think about that I have found that on the whole most people give me notes back you know uh, without being disrespectful or anything you know but but it becomes a bit more of a collaborative thing Um, I've also found that with um with directing myself in things that I've tended to rehearse a bit more and I've tended to have an actor uh, who will learn the entire part um, and who I can direct a bit as well you know in, in in so that I can see it a bit see the whole thing a little bit um, but it uh, you just have to yeah you have gotta listen you know you can't you know you gotta try and Find the way to get some objectivity, and then in film, of course, you do have the ultimate luxury—you see it the next day, or as it used to be, the next day—and um, then do it again if it's not up to snuff, which uh, sometimes it would not be. So, but it ends up being—you need as much help as you can get.
1: Is it nice though, because you can always rely on your lead actor to be there and not fight with you?
0: <laughs> I think that can be an advantage. Sometimes you get a bit—you know, as much as you put yourself in that position, which obviously must require, uh, you know, the appropriate amount of self-belief or ego or whatever it is, or determination, uh, nevertheless, you have uh, moments of doubt and uh, uh, and, and, and uh, you can be a little neurotic about it, like, because that's part of who one is. Um, and you, But it's such an amazing, if you care about the detail of it, as I do, then once you put yourself in that position, you've just got to get on with it, you
1: know? Uh, I want to talk about some of the films you directed before coming mm. back to acting, although you acted in, in most of these. Um, and I want to start with Peter's Friends, just yeah. for no other reason than I love this movie. <laughs> um, and it introduced, I think, a lot of actors like Hugh Laurie and Stephen yeah. Fry and Imelda Staunton
2: yeah.
1: to uh, America and yeah. we hadn't seen them before. How did this project come about? What appealed to you about it?
0: Um, well, uh I used to see them at our house a lot uh, because uh, Hugh Laurie, you may know, was at uh, university with Emma. And as was Stephen Fry, as was Tony Slattery, as was Martin Bergman, who was one of the co-writers of the film. And I was over here, I was doing post-production on Dead Again. I was uh, staying with Martin and Rita and we were talking about uh, um, feeling that there, there was this sort of group of people who all had fairly variously interesting interconnected lives who were all going through sort of various life challenges or might be having the first child or might be having career things or might be just sort of um you know brushing up against life in the way other people might recognize and, and uh so that there was a kind of there was a, an ensemble story character study to be done there that we could maybe write specifically for them so um, Rita uh, Rudner, uh, Martin's uh, wife, a uh, brilliant comedian in her own right. Um, uh, basically, we we worked and we everybody sort of threw their full penneth and then those two went off and did it. And uh, uh, and it was nice. We knew, for instance, there's a lovely scene, I think, in it for Hugh where. Because um, Imelda Staunton, a former Oscar nominee and, and brilliant actress, of uh, on the bed. Uh, yeah, yeah. On the scene, on the bed. well, my favorite the, scene in the well, there's a, there's a scene also for for, for Hugh when he's talking when he when he's talking about the twins that they might or might not have had. Um, but it's just it's basically it's an interior moment of pain for him. I remember at the time we all knew that Hugh was a great actor, and the last person who knew it or believed it was Hugh, and. Uh, and so we wanted to give him this moment because we knew he'd do it wonderfully well. And he was quite tortured about it, which we teased him about. Um, but <laughs> it was lovely to see that happen. And I think Stephen Fry is terrific in it. Uh, Emma's absolutely wonderful in it. And, and uh, it, it was it was. It was very, uh, it feels like it might seem, and maybe it does, very sort of cliquey and sort of self-congratulatory, but there's a lot of artistic Puritans in that group, so everybody wanted it to be good and were, were good with each other. It's quite a robust group, you know. Uh, there's, now, there's one where people give you notes, I can tell you that, if you're directing <laughs> it. Um, but uh, it was, it was it felt like it was a special, a special mm-hmm. piece. And I guess we couldn't but have been influenced by The Big Chill, which was a a uh, 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 Lawrence Kasdan film that I think is really terrific. Um, and uh, so it was... It was, it was, it was. I now look back on it with great fondness because, you know, everybody's done so well.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, no, it was interesting. I remember seeing it, and I had only seen Hugh Laurie in Blackadder up mm. to that point. And I was like, oh, my God, this guy can act. Yeah. Like, he can do drama.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. And he was... It was funny, the... Uh, Hugh's great hero, It's funny to think of this, Hugh's great hero is Clint Eastwood. Um, seems a bit weird, doesn't it? But, I mean, why shouldn't he be? Um, but it just seems unlikely, uh, different kinds of individuals. But, but uh, I mean, he was sort of, I mean, really starstruck about Clint. And, uh, and as a kind of at end of term present, um, Emma, as somebody that Clint at that stage would not have known, wrote to Clint Eastwood and told him she'd got this friend. So Emma Thompson writes to Clint Eastwood to say, I've got this friend called Hugh Laurie, uh, who's such a huge fan of you. Would you ever, could you possibly send a photograph? Which he did. So before either of them became... Uh Uh, you know sort of international stars there they were having a little starstruck moment and no one more pleased than uh, Hugh when he opened this framed photograph with uh, a signed uh, uh, picture from uh, Clint Eastwood I think they I I think has Emma worked with him I think or nearly did or now Hugh might have done they certainly have met subsequently but it's nice to it was a nice moment of remembering just uh, that kind of the innocence of that.
1: Did they just look up Clint Who's Who of American <laughs> ad-
0: <laughs> I think I think that had to go to a magical a magical place in Burbank. Uh, uh, I, think they were, I think Emma was smart enough to know where to write to. Uh,
1: you also directed two, I, I guess I'd say, adaptations of classic works, Frankenstein and Sleuth. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Frankenstein, what appealed to you about telling a new version of Mary Shelley's story? Um
0: i 've done so much work on Hamlet that Frankenstein, the character seemed a sort of a reverse of that coin where uh, uh, or a sort of parallel figure i don 't know how to describe it where, where if Hamlet is about grief and and the amongst many other things, but if it 's at least about grief and the difficulty that we face accepting loss you know if, if hamlet 's problem is his father died and uh, And he does not feel that his mother has grieved long enough for his father, that there hasn't been this period, this ritual of mourning. And uh, I sometimes think the entire play of Hamlet would be completely redundant if Hamlet and Gertrude would just have had like half an hour, a cup of tea one morning (laughs) to say wasn't it terrible or had some memorial for him instead of coping with it in their different ways. But whereas Victor Frankenstein sort of defies death, simply says, Mm. "I, I, I won't have this. Um, and so that that's, that that defiance, that hubris of, of man against uh, what appears to be God's plan, uh, at that point in, in in human development, that sort of rage of, of man against uh, God and, and nature, uh, I found that very, um, as as generations since it was written have done, uh, in, in, and in other versions of that myth, um, very very compelling and. Um, and the, the whole experience was sort of a little mad, you know, because of huge production and uh, being at the centre of it and all the sets and everything, sort of getting into shape for it and kind of everything was sort of obsessive about it. I'd get up at 5 o'clock in the morning, I'd run to work, or at least I'd be, I'd be dropped about six miles from Shepherd's Studios, I'd run the rest of the way and then I'd get made up and then I'd have to be there before anybody else. And then so I was a bit Frankensteinian as I did it, you know. Um, and... Uh, it was. It was for me. It was a joy and a, and, um, a revelation to work with De Niro. Um, and as I say, uh, uh, the other night, uh, uh, we had this scene where he he's born, and we ended up sort of semi-naked together in a, in a ton of KY jelly um, <laughs> wrestling. Uh, seemed a strange way to get to know Robert, but uh, um, <laughs> probably be- better than he he would have wished. But. Uh, uh, but it was it was fascinating to see him. One of the things I like doing, um, and it was a, such a treat then; it would be even more now. Is is whoever it is, uh, I, I like to just I enjoy when uh, I, I know I'm going to work with an actor. Just reviewing their work, I mean, in mm-hmm. the sense of just going back and seeing it again. So, uh, rather like my week with Marilyn, which involved watching everything Olivier had done before working with Robert, I watched everything, everything that he'd done, and. Uh, that's like a sort of free, free class at film acting school or something. Um, and then to see him, see him do it and be so surprising, um, you know, with the two of us waiting to do a scene and the two lads playing, uh, um, messengers who are going to come in and give some news to the professor and, uh, and, and the, you know, it was a, obviously they were, they were, it was urgent news. And uh, so we were waiting to do it. The two guys are jumping up and down. They're doing press-ups and everything and, you know, getting out of breath. And, okay, ready to go. Oh, no, we just need two minutes. And then they do it again and everything. And him just, you know, looking bemused. You know, <laughs> and, and why they were going to all of this trouble. And, and him said yeah, cool. um, you know, why, why are they doing that? Um, and I said, "Well, that's well. You're the reason they're doing that. Is because uh, uh, you know they, they they think that now they they're coming into a scene breathless, they're making themselves breathless." Uh, he said, "You only need to do it when they say action," um, which the boys heard and were completely astonished by because you know we assumed that you know the man who you know played Jake LaMotta and put on all that weight and everything was extreme to degree. But he was a combination of these things. And when, when, when we've spoken about, indeed you and I have spoken about the the kind of difference, say, in, in my week with Marilyn, between the idea of the method and and, uh, and something more traditional or classical, Robert to me was an interesting example of just whatever works for whatever scene and whatever part. So I'm sure on another occasion he might have made himself breathless or he might have done something. But he he I felt with him and what i kind of sensed with Olivier is uh, like Ulysses, they have a great deal of cunning as actors about how to best use their energies, and they don 't necessarily my experience of watching people like this they don 't necessarily have a single approach um, and so to watch him you know just do that particular performance was great to see and i 've nicked lots of things since he he would he loved having um, DPs don't, but he loved having many cameras running, you know, and sometimes having the wide shot being photographed at the same time as the close shot, which is difficult for sound and picture, but means that you've got a consistency of performance that you can cut to. And, uh, you know, and he would do, he would repeat lines and things and we would keep running and we go back to the top of a scene and we wouldn't cut and everything. And uh, he, you really felt, a film artist who was working in the moment, you know, and full of uh, ideas and, 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 you know, sort of, tricks, I suppose, to keep himself fresh. And, and so he was a remarkable person to learn from.
1: I'm always curious about, specifically, people who work with De Niro and direct De Niro. Uh, do you ever have discussions where you're arguing a point with him, because he's De Niro?
0: I wouldn't argue with him. <laughs> <laughs> not, not expect to leave in one piece, I wouldn't. Uh...
1: <laughs> and have you ever been intimidated? You've worked with so many amazing actors. Lots. <laughs>
0: plenty intimidated yeah uh, but I you know it's a way you look at it isn't it you think uh, just just a little shift as Hamlet says there's nothing good or bad but thinking makes it so and um, so intimidation can be excitement just like that you know um, I remember uh, that very season of plays we spoke about where, where Judy Dench was um, directing as if, oh, yeah, I was just, yeah, I was 27, so I got Judy Dench to come and direct a play. I mean, I'd worked with her, but I was in awe of her. I, I think it was three days to work up the courage to make that telephone call. And I scripted the telephone call.
2: <laughs>
0: and I scripted it to be to be naturalistic. You know, I can't remember what it was, but I literally got an A4 page. Hi, Judy, Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm fine. Just all of those kind of responses, you know. What, much do you know much to do about nothing? Yeah, well, we were doing this, whatever it was. I came up with, but and I'm like, my hands were shaking. you know. Uh, uh, John Gilgood, who I worked with a number of times, um, was was somebody who who just impossible to be in the same room and not feel from 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 that 16 year old boy who got the idea from a teacher who perhaps was irresponsible that I could be an actor. I then. Read everything about the theater I possibly could and um, and was encyclopedic actually really and then not anymore but in in, in, in my knowledge of, of uh, particularly the 60s but much further back as well. I read biographies and theatrical magazines and so when I would sit this close to John Gilgum, we're playing Romeo and Julia on the radio, and I'm playing Romeo, and he's being Father Lawrence, and I know that he's played Romeo to Laurence Olivier's Mercutio, and, and I know that he was Alfred Hitchcock's secret agent, and I know that he was uh, Cassius in Joseph Mankiewicz's Julius Caesar with Brando, and I know that he was Arthur, in, 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 in Arthur's butler in Arthur, and won his Oscar for that, and uh, that he worked with George Bernard Shaw, and his stage debut was in 1924 at the Old Vic Theatre, <laughs> and all of this stuff. Uh, I, you know, it's very hard to think of anything interesting to say, um, <laughs> because I also know this guy's played in front of uh, prime ministers and presidents. And, uh, no, the, the, you know, the, the truth is, of course, once you start working with e- even the most exalted of individuals, they're just human beings just like us. And, you know, we know that that's true. But it's kind of exciting to be a bit awed by them as well. Then you get, of course, very inspired. You want to be good in the scene. I was always fine once we started acting together. Um, And, of course, I just uh, I watched what he was doing and and his tech, his technical ability was great. What was amazing about him, though, for somebody who who was perhaps associated with being a sort of very classical English um, Shakespearean actor of a certain kind that perhaps some people would dismiss as being rather technical. He was so real, so utterly, utterly, utterly natural. And uh, he and Brando got on like that when they did Julius Caesar and they spoke a lot about doing Shakespeare. Brando's a sensation in that movie, I think. And I think if Gielgud had an influence in that, uh, that, that, I wouldn't be surprised. But uh, so it's daft to be intimidated because it's, you know, it's a beautiful thing that you're anywhere near such great talents. uh, uh, But yeah, you have to take a few deep breaths uh, from time to time. Yeah.
1: What about the intimidation of remaking something like Sleuth, which originally starred Michael Caine and, of course, Lawrence Olivier? Yeah.
2: Um, mm.
1: What appealed to you about taking on that project?
0: Harold Pinter's screenplay. Um, so I got to be in the same room as Harold Pinter um, and Michael Caine and Jude Law. And, uh, of course, the fact that Michael Caine wanted to be in it, a film that had been, you know, multi-nominated with, it was Mankiewicz's last film and, and Michael's marvelous in the original and Olivia is, you know, very, uh, you know, extraordinary. Um, but the fact that Michael wanted to do this very different take on it, this very sort of interior kind of, uh, take still a very theatrical idea, but, um, a very sort of, uh, different kind of take on it. And it also, it was a fun, I had a fun ex- experience with, uh, uh, Pinter who, you know, fairly extraordinary individual, um, um, and who at that stage was, um, I don't know, he just won his Nobel Prize. So he'd won the Nobel Prize. I mean, not that he needed to win anything, but <laughs> he just, he'd done a ton of wonderful writing and uh, he'd done this thing. And uh, uh, Martin Schaefer, who runs Castle Rock over here, had been a great friend to me and to our work and was one of the reasons we were able to make that full-length Hamlet because of Castle Rock. They were, they were behind a sleuth. And he'd said, as he'd said all the way through to, to Jude and, and, and everyone, and Harold, Quite honestly, he said, I wonder if there is anything to be thought about for the ending, if there's any additional twist. It's so wonderful, Harold. Um, do, I mean, you know, anyway, they'd had a development process where Harold had said no to that. And after a, a run through, we had a week of rehearsal where it was just brilliant to watch those two rehearsing. And we did a kind of run through for Harold. He was very ill at that point. So I was uh, wheeling him around. He was in a wheelchair, and I was wheeling him around to be the camera. Uh, which was very intimidating for Michael Caine it was very very intimidating the first few minutes of that read through to, to you know there's you're Michael Caine and there's Jude Law and there's Harold Pinter being <laughs> looking like, that, like that and I'm behind him so the two of us are there and I'm saying we're just going to be with the cameras every time Harold, very
2: good very good yes
0: um, and, uh, but at the end of it and I'd said to uh, Michael and uh, uh, to Jude, so do you, what do you feel about this ending? Do you think it's worth, should we try and have this conversation with Harold about possible change? We're not talking about throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but he's brilliant. It's brilliant. I'm sure, you know, he's got a bloody Nobel Prize. I'm sure he could, you know, maybe there's something even better. And Michael said, yeah, absolutely. Right behind you, Jude said, yeah, absolutely. Uh, no, let's have that conversation. So then the four of us are sitting at a table after the read-through, this close. Uh, then Michael, Jude, Harold Pinter. Da da da. what read-through. It went very well. Oh, thanks very much. Marvelous, marvelous. marvelous. Harold, <coughs> I'm just wondering, and, and already I can see his eyes start to do that. Just wondering. Yes. Just wondering I mean, the the end. What about the end? I'm just. We're just wondering. And now Michael and Jude are just doing this. Just doing this. And, uh, I said, I'd, it's not just me. Michael and Jude, and now they're doing that. Literally, actors. Um, uh, I said, look, uh, uh, I'd explained you know, what the possibilities were. He said, I don't understand. I don't understand what you're talking about. And I thought, well, you do understand exactly what I'm talking about. So I went. then I, was, then it may, then I got a little bit whatever. I thought, well, you may be Lord Pinter of Nobelshire, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless, nevertheless, it's worth having a conversation. So we go through. He said, well, now I see what you mean. Here is what I have to say about the ending of the screenplay. I believe that in all of my works, across film, theater, and plays, across the 60 years of my career, that there has never been a more completely successful ending to a work of my art than the end of this screenplay of Sleuth. Long pause, then I said, So you're not going to change it? I'm not going to change it! (laughs) (laughs) He did not not rewrite, so. (laughs)
1: Um, Of course, I want to bring up a movie that just came out last year. You might have seemed like an unusual choice to direct Thor, uh, just because it's a comic adaptation. I actually find it very Shakespearean in many ways. Uh, Who first approached you with that idea? Uh, My uh,
0: uh, agent, Robert Newman, uh, with whom I just sort of signed, um, uh, had been full of, you know, sort of offbeat uh, ideas. And and sort of I'd ask, listen, hey, I'm I'm interested to be uh, surprised and stimulated by uh, any kind of uh, different sorts of thoughts. I go and watch lots of different kinds of movies. So I'd be so, I'm you know, it's time for maybe thinking about uh, different kind of uh, directions and so he, he sent a message one day saying, would you, would you ever think about directing Thor? And, uh, and I said immediately, yes, uh, because it was alone uh, amongst comic books. Which I'm not a comic book uh, geek, but I absolutely knew Thor and well uh, from my time when I was a kid in Belfast. That's when I started being aware of it. And, um, and I was quite excited. So that really was an unusual choice. And... Uh, I like the combination of uh, how uh, primitive Thor is. I like the fact that he's an extremely strong individual, and uh, I like this 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 hammer, this sort of blunt, rather brilliant uh, thing, um, and yet turns out to be very. Uh, he, he turns out to be very virtuosic with it. Um, uh, and I like the fact also he's primitive, but, but the story can travel across realms and you know through space. And so it has that sort of fantastical and, and pretty surreal and eccentric quality that I think is also fun. If you, if you want to go, go to the movies, I, I want to go to the movies and see things that I would not see on television, that I would not see in the theater. I want to see something in the cinema that really will be unique to, and play to the strengths of that medium. And those qualities in the story seem to me to have all of that but there was a spine uh, available to us which was this story of a young prince who needs to you know prove himself to be a sort of capable leader and 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 a, and, a, and, a, and a, a son who um gains for what it's worth to him his father's approval uh, and set against a, a brother who 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 wants to try and do the same thing there was essentially a kind of a story about fathers and sons at the center of it that I thought anchored all of that and uh so I like the idea that, that it could have the ambition of a big popular movie and try and be uh, sensory, you know, give you big sound and big music and big effects, but also have at its heart uh, character and, um, and, you know, believability on, on the human scale.
1: Um, I'm surprised by how much I love the movie, to be honest, mm. because I was not familiar with the comics. And when I knew he had a magical hammer, like, I wasn't sure what to expect. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um,
1: and one of the things I really love about the movie is the casting of Chris Hemsworth and mm. Tom Hiddleston. Mm. Uh, was there any pressure to use bigger names? What, how did they win those roles? Well, uh,
0: yes and no. I mean, I think uh, if, if we'd had more established actors, they prob- possibly might have been a little older, and they'd certainly been more expensive, and uh, that, that was a, probably a, a factor. But I think that... Um, <laughs> We, uh, the essential feeling was to was to find people, and find people who could uh, fulfil the sort of physical characteristics in in, in Chris's case, um, and to some extent in Tom's case, and who would be uh, would take it as seriously as we were taking it. You know, uh, we wanted to have serious fun with it, but but certainly taking it uh, uh, seriously, and who would uh, work hard on the character side of it as well as the um, as all of the physical things, and they both—they uh, a—they had a very good natural rapport themselves as actors, and happened to happen to also as 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 people. Um, but they're both just very, very talented, very talented, and and uh, and were were sort of unafraid. I mean, a lot of people—it was quite a big a big responsibility, particularly for Chris to to carry such a thing, and uh, I'm very proud of the pair of them, and they were a, a delight to work with, and I feel rather. They've both uh, been nominated uh, in next week's uh, BAFTAs uh, in the character of uh, character in the category of rising star. Um, and so, uh, uh, and Eddie Redmayne, in fact, who plays uh, uh, Colin Clark in My Week with Marilyn. So, I feel rather sort of paternal pride in uh, my association with them. Um, they're both tremendous, tremendous actors.
1: Who are they up against? Is it just the three of them?
0: No, there's two other lads. Um, they're all ever so good. So uh, you know. Uh, thank God it's, we don't vote for it. It's voted for by magical people at BAFTA. So I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't, because I, you know, I, I would be, I'd get into trouble one way or another if I had to vote for it. Uh
1: For your acting career, how do you choose your roles?
0: Well, sometimes I don't choose, sometimes it depends on what shows up. Um, uh, you know, you look for something that, um, you know, grabs your attention and, and uh I, I think we're all creatures who like to sort of surprise and I, you hope that there's a variety in what you do. It's, it's, for instance, with My Week with Marilyn, The obviously you can tell from this conversation that Laurence Olivier has had a huge influence on my career and many others. Uh, but just as I mentioned with De Niro, the idea of being able to uh, go back and look at his work, learn from it, and, and there was so much to absorb yourself in, so much to, uh, you know, kind of get your teeth into as an actor. Um but more, more and more, I, I, the uh, the thing that I tried to enjoy doing, and I just finished doing some more uh, films of, of the Swedish detective called Wallander. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Um, which will be they will be on Masterpiece this uh, this coming July, I believe. Um, that's a character and a genre and a, and a kind of approach to the, in this case, a detective on, on in television drama, ninety minutes. Uh, where the demand for just truth unvarnished un- truth uh, as little acting as possible is is a real drive and, and that um, whatever the venue whatever the part whatever that just i don 't seem such a silly thing to say really you know oh, what, what i 've become really interested in is trying to be real uh, but uh it 's just i 've noticed how difficult it is um, and what I love, I love watching acting that you can't see. And I guess what I've come to understand is that that's very difficult to do and that people who do it are most impressive to me. And it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful when, when even if they're doing something big or there's an accent or there's something in between or there's, it's a very characterful performance, it's lovely to see invisible acting. Um, and that's, I guess, what I, I, I'm drawn to that to answer your question. Where, where can I try Where's the part where I can do the least? <laughs>
1: Uh, it seems like you've played a lot of real-life people in your career, from Franklin Roosevelt, uh, to Henry, Ernest Henry Shackleton, to actually a couple of Nazis. Um, what's that about, actually?
0: It's <laughs> Um uniform.
2: Uh,
0: well, I, I don't know. Sometimes it's hard to know if there's a pattern, if there is any pattern to why you're drawn to certain things, but... Uh, that, that thing we were just talking about, actually, of, of that sort of um, it, invisible acting, with something like uh, Conspiracy, a film in which I played Hydra. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you. In fact, I saw it, uh, Frank Pearson, who directed it, was at the, the, the nominee's luncheon today, former president of the Academy, indeed, uh, and Oscar-winning screenwriter himself. Um, and that, that uh, was so, such a scary read, that, that screenplay, uh, such a sort of insidious account of how Fifteen fellows around a table over a period of ninety minutes, real time. It's just ninety minutes. They decided that they would kill eleven million Jews. Just, you know, we've got chilling stuff to read. Uh, it was great performance from Stanley, the, the great Stanley Tucci. Um, and I remember even what I, makes me makes me give the shivers when I think of it now. He was sitting next to me at this table, um, saying, just saying. And so we've um, we have some land now. We've found a place. Um, in upper silesia it's called auschwitz and we can get and, and he the way it was sort of dropped in was so shocking and uh it was very just on reading that screenplay i i thought that uh that would be something it was just it was important and it was uh terrifying and it was a difficult thing to do because uh uh, on all sorts of levels For the the subject matter itself was, was couldn't but be sort of harrowing if you watched it and certainly if you were in it and uh and then the requirement to really try and do no acting at all was so total um that uh you know why Nazis well in that case, it was just that was such a compelling compelling story where uh uh it just It couldn't not be done. That was one of those ones that came along you thought, well, you have to do this. You've got to do
1: this. Uh, Speaking of real-life people, that obviously brings us to my week with Marilyn Mm -hmm. and Sir Laurence Olivier. Mm -hmm. Uh, You've been compared to him a lot in your career, starting with Henry V. You both directed, adapted, starred in productions of Henry V and Hamlet. Did it almost seem inevitable you'd play him someday or did you avoid it for that reason? I think
0: the opposite. It was inevitable. In a way... The comparison thing, it's funny in our country anyway, he was such a, uh, when you came into the, when I came into the business, uh, there was just, he was the name on everyone's lips as the actor. So my mum and dad uh, would, you know, that's who they think of as uh, the actor. And maybe in America at that time, they would have thought it was still Marlon Brando. Marlon Brando, when you talk about the great actors, Marlon Brando over here and Laurence Olivier over there in the broadest terms. Of course, they loved many, 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 many more actors than that. But but it was that simple. And um, and literally everybody was compared to Olivier. He did so much work because he was a great film star. He was a great man of the theater. He'd done so many classical roles that in England, if you pursued any kind of classical career, i.e., if you did Shakespeare plays or period plays, uh, then it just was every review would start with, but for those who've seen Olivier, or for, but if you saw Olivier, or and that would be absolutely the case, every it didn't matter who you were. And then I suppose if you didn't fail completely, you were then compared favorably. Uh, but this happened for the generation of actors that was Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole, it happened for the generation of actors that was Anthony Hopkins and Ian McKellen. And then because he was still dominating things, it happened for my generation and perhaps. Inevitably, because of the simple fact of doing a film of Henry V that that that, that he obviously had done spectacularly, Um, and so it just it couldn't be avoided. But it you know wasn't something that you know would would stop you doing it because he you know a trillion productions of Henry V that happened since the play was written just because of the nature of the film medium there were never going to be that many film versions but there will be another one there'll be perhaps there'll be lots more there'll be another one soon perhaps uh, and so uh, and, and you know people might get compared to ours and to his as well uh, that's just in the nature of things I think but um, uh, on the whole you know uh, one feels as though it's nice to sort of perhaps be at some points considered for who you are and what you've become and so one never wanted to sort of go down that road again. But th- this, this, this came along, and it was Simon Curtis, who's a great director and somebody I'd worked with before. David Parfitt, um, you know, from way back, um, who was a producer, and Harvey Weinstein, who I'd worked with before. But most importantly, it was a very, very vivid account of uh, a great hero in difficulty and behind the scenes. And, uh, and it was an opportunity to talk a bit about the very things we've been talking about, this idea about acting. You know, he says in the film... As, as, as Paula Strasberg says, you know, Marilyn's only interested in truth. And he says so we're agreed on that, you know, uh, we absolutely want truth. And if you can fake that, uh, you know, you'll have a great, a great career, uh, which is part of the paradox of, of, uh, of what we do. Even at our most committed to the truth, you've still got to show up somewhere. You know, there's still, you know, a kind of element of it that is not, that can't just be entirely spontaneous. At least mostly that's the case. So th- th- things about the nature of art were there, but very subtly. I mean because it's an easy watch it's an easy read and it it appears on the surface to be a very sort of simple kind of movie and I think it is in a beautiful way simple's difficult but it also has layers of meaning I think that are really attractive and, and uh, to play him as I say was to go back and go back to college and uh, in the end it was just all too all too irresistible so uh, I, I essentially felt very honored and then I also felt, without getting too sort of pretentious about it, that it was, in a strange way, it was a way of saying thank you very much um, for all that inspiration.
1: Even the unflattering scenes. Well, I think you
0: know, <laughs> no one is more candid about, about what happened than he is in his, own, um, in his own Confessions of an Actor and the other book on acting and in other mater- material interviews and things. He's very candid about how thrown he was by Marilyn, how sort of emasculated he felt. He felt he was not good in the movie. Um, He was, I mean, he he might argue that he was a little indiscreet in how he spoke about it, but uh, no more indiscreet than we are in making a film about it. Um, uh, So he was, that was one of the reasons in the end one decided one could do it, because he'd written largely about it. And Anthony Hopkins, who, as you know, was in Thor, uh, uh, worked with Olivier on uh, *Mutiny and the Bounty in, uh, I think, 83 or 84, and they had, he said they got very drunk the night together the night before uh, Olivier's scenes. Uh, and Olivier was still banging on about Marilyn then, still <laughs> completely.
2: Couldn't still, let go. Well, he couldn't
0: quite, I guess he was still trying to work out why it didn't work. You know, he was still perplexed by what in theory could or should have been a sort of tremendous uh, collaboration. She was the biggest movie star in the world. He was the sort of greatest actor. She was uh, she was happily married just recently to Arthur Miller. It was her own production company. It was a great opportunity for him. It should all have been terrific, and it was a disaster, you know, <laughs> for them.
1: Why do you think it didn't work?
0: I think um, I, I don't know, and I don't. The, the film sort of tries to look at possible reasons why. Uh, I think it was tough for him if if I'm correct to have her as his boss for her not to show up on time. I think that he felt that that was the basic requirement was that you you could kind of be difficult or temperamental. He was used to all of that. He was married to Vivian Lee, they were having a very tough time, so he knew about, you know, difficult artists. He was one himself. But I guess he just couldn't Handle the lateness. Uh, Maybe it's as simple as that. Uh, Because I think he took it personally. He found it disrespectful. Um, I think he found, uh, you know, I think he wanted her to fall in love with him. He thought, "I'm 50 years old, but rather beautiful." You know,
2: and of course, and of course, he was 50
0: years old and rather beautiful. But uh, but she was Marilyn Monroe and just married, so it was, you know, it was less likely to happen than perhaps he he thought. Um, So I think there was quite a bit of personal stuff. Mm that wove its way into it, and then I think he possibly realized, gosh, on film, she is walking away with this, um, and that all his experience of playing that role in the theater um, had left him, perhaps, by contrast with her naturalism. It's still a heightened style. I mean, the piece is still very theatrical in its way. It's not, it's not normal people talking you know, across a kitchen table, as it were. So It's still very heightened. She's Elsie Marina from The Coconut Review, Um, but she still manages in a heightened style to be so wonderfully uh, simple. And he's got his accent and he's got the, I think you feel as though maybe he's playing for some laughs that he got in the theater that I don't think work as spontaneously. Then I think it's the problem, which I'm aware can be an issue of when you're, if you're directing somebody who's challenging in a two-handed scene and you're directing and you're trying to give them of your best, then potentially your performance is, going to, uh, is maybe going to, if not suffer, it's going to be affected by it. And I think that that might have been the case with him as well.
1: Now, you never got to meet Olivier, but mm. you have worked with and are friends with many people who yeah. did work with him. Yeah. Did they, was there any insight you gleaned from that?
0: They talked about, I mean, Tony Hopkins and Derek Jacoby both talked about how Olivier could, would be all things to all people. You know, he was many characters in a day. Um, he would be the you know your genial host. He would be you know the serious academic type. Although he in, in, in truth, everyone says he wasn't very academic, but he was sort of brilliantly intuitively smart. He could be very sort of bitchy and camp. He could be, uh, um, and he could and he could be rather grand and you know sort of uh, representing the British theatre. He was a bit of a bit of everything. Gielgud said this about him that you never quite knew who you were getting. Um, but he so he was, everything was a kind of performance, brilliant performance. But but uh, you didn't quite know
2: who,
0: who who he was. Was the impression that they gave? But uh, both Hopkins and Jacoby both said, as a leader in the National Theatre, where they were all there with Ian McKellen and, and you know Albert Finney and Maggie Smith, that he was quite wonderful. You know, really an inspiring inspiring figure and if you just look at his industry the and that group of actors that he developed at the National Theatre in the 60s was really a very sterling group of people he knew you know he knew uh talent when he saw it yeah
1: didn't Hopkins and Jacoby do Othello with him
0: uh they well no Jacoby Derek was in it and uh Hopkins might have been in it walking walking on um, Michael Gambon was in that uh, Othello and that was uh Famously, where Olivier apparently did some, uh, in what was already a celebrated performance, he did a particularly spellbinding performance one, one particular evening. It was about, apparently amazing. And uh, so much so, so unusually so, even for his, even by his high standards, that as he walked off, all of the actors, this included Maggie Smith and Derek Jackmey and Frank Finley, spontaneously applauded him as he left the stage. But as he did so, he, he looked thunderous. He looked so angry, and he stormed past them. And he slammed his dressing room door. And Derek was the one assigned to go up and nervously <laughs> knock on the, uh, on the dressing room door and say, Sir uh, Lawrence, we just, I, I don't, you seem upset, sir. We, we just, I mean, you, of course, are wonderful in the role. But tonight, sir, you transcended. It was one of the greatest things any of us have ever witnessed. Tonight, you, you, you were, if I may humbly say so, truly great. To which he replied, yes, I know and I'm so angry because I don't know how I did it. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, it's quite indicative, isn't it, of the, this, uh, he, he, was a, he was this master technician. That's what I, the point I was making about sort of R- Robert De Niro earlier on is that, is that um, you know, the greats, even someone like Olivia, who might, who might have, and in his relationship with Marilyn, might have sort of been insistent on the idea that you showed up and you were mechanical and it was about technique and everything. He was capable of, because he was a great artist, this inspiration. And that, that seemed to be a night on which, little did he know, you know, the muse had been with him in addition to all the hard work and in addition to all the brilliant technique. He had flown, it had sung, the part had played him. And, of course, if the part plays you in Shakespeare, Jesus, you I mean it will be transcendent. because I mean, if you, if you somehow let go in Hamlet, and I've had that experience where that thing is happening. You're, you just, you're there. It's coming through you. It's like meditation. It's like sort of being at one with the universe. When Hamlet's on song and you happen to be saying the words, it's a, it's a mystical experience, both for you and for the audience. And I think, uh, I think he had that and, and, uh, 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 more than once. But on that particular night, it's funny that he should be so cross that he, that he couldn't <laughs> put it in a box and say, that's how I'll do it again.
1: Uh, in a way, I guess you've been sort of preparing to play this role your entire life. Uh, did you have an existing Olivier impersonation? And what other research did you do?
0: I, uh, I, it wasn't really impersonation. I, I often did just do impersonations of other people who did impersonations of him. But I remember <laughs> two t- t- um, accounts of other, you know, uh, meeting his voice for the first time. When I was uh, sort of 15, 16 and doing Shakespeare and, and, uh, at school and then being introduced to the idea of being an actor... There was a, uh, an LP record, long-playing record, uh, uh, of the speeches from the Shakespeare films of Laurence Olivier. Um, and There was also another one of John Gielgud performing The Ages of Man, a, a concert version of speeches from Shakespeare. So I, rem- I asked to borrow those. These were very un- unused in the English uh, <laughs> uh, stockroom cupboard. Clearly, you know, they had been used in the teaching world or by any student. For, so they didn't mind. I took them home and i and so that 's the first time I think I consciously heard, so I would my first memory of Olivier in a way was just the kind of creaking of this little <laughs> of the record going around, and then to be or not to be that is the question and so it went on. it was just uh, <laughs> and then the the other the other way I heard Olivier at that time was um. On a variety show on a Sunday night on, on English television, Peter Sellers—this was how sort of famous as the actor Olivier was—Peter Sellers doing an impersonation of Olivier as Richard III, <laughs> performing in the voice of and in the style of Olivier's performance as Richard III, a Beatles song.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: so he was said, "It's been a hard day for night." <laughs> And I've been working like a dog. <laughs> and he went on through the whole of the the, the whole of that uh, number. But it was uh, and he looked very like him. He sounded very like him. Actually. But, so so and then everybody else in our profession would do. Uh, Anthony Hopkins does a wonderful uh, Olivier impersonation. And uh, uh, but anyway, in, in this case, when we with Marilyn, you were just trying to find, uh, particularly that sort of. Uh,
2: that sort of thing that
0: he does where he's kind of he's all a, it's all one kind of wiggle you know where <laughs> it's a kind of uh, where it's it's just about seduction I mean he said famously a little more graphically than this that uh, that when you go on stage, you should make every single member of that audience want to uh, uh, do things to you uh, uh, <laughs> and, uh, male or female and and, um, and so he there's a kind of thing about him that was often comically frustrated in this process with Marilyn, where he saw himself as, and indeed effectively was, in many cases in life, the great seducer. And uh, rather like, I've noticed when meeting very powerful people, that one of the things they do always is drop their voice. They always make you lean forward, whether it's royalty or, or politicians, you know, in private. And I think Olivia used to do that. Also, he sort of, would sort of affect this kind of lisp. He didn't really have a lisp, but he sort of put it in anyway. And also, if you watch him in interview, the hand sort of keeps doing that. And also, he rolled his, world, his uh, tongue around and everything a little bit, kind of, you know. It's a, it's a bit, it's pretty camp as well, you know. And it's sort of, um, because he knows he can't do that. Uh, and he's got all of those uh, big colours and big voice and Othello's down there and everything that the sort of Olivier in Interview which is there's a great interview with him and Kenneth Tynan with Olivier just called On Acting uh, where it's it's like a sort of kitten trying to seduce the interviewer and he's always sort of touching things and trying to be and also affect a sort of voice that sort of starts to kind of uh, break things up and sort of go a little bit babyish yeah. so anyway <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, as you could tell I had hours of mindless fun doing this you know uh, it's a funny, you know, the, the, there's a marvelous uh, documentary about by Melvin Bragg, great British um, documentary maker, did the South Bank show. You've probably seen many accounts, did 25 years of the South Bank show. And they did two um, great hours on, maybe it was more than that, two two hour versions of, of Olivier's life, and, in which Olivier is interviewed throughout. And But he was so, um, you're asking, you know, what do people who knew him think he was like? And he just had a sort of sense of the theatrical and and at the end of that uh, four hours of uh, detailed account of this extraordinary, rich, packed life and you just had this sense of him which we try and get in my week with Marilyn, I've sort of he, he kind of performs his life for you and he knows how to finish it off. He's got a great sense of the theatrical. He knows, you know, what's a beginning, and a middle and an end and how to get to the kind of third act climax and then come down and then get ready for the fifth act. And he's just got a simple line at the end. of. It. He's in his garden at the end talking to Melvin Bragg. And uh, he says, um,
2: I've, I've got a wonderful family.
0: Beautiful children. They're very kind to me. I feel very petted. I remember the just unusual choice of words, you know, um, <laughs> petted, and also he hits the T's in the middle and the D's at the end. so I feel very petted.
2: Um,
0: and then there's a long pause, and then he just looks away, sort of tragic, like a character in a Chekhov play. <laughs> 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 the uh, four hours of television, he knows it's the end. He knows he's got to come up with something, and he could do a big finish, or he can do the, or he can do go out on a sort of minor note, and he looks away and he goes. Sir. The funny old kind of a day, isn't it? That's it. That's how it goes. <laughs>
2: it's
0: a funny old kind of a day, isn't it? And again, he's back to being a little cat with a cream. You yeah. go, great, so wonderful. It's just, he's, it's just a, a, sort of a wonderful, outrageous, magnetic thing.
1: Uh, I have a question from the audience, um, from Avery Maddox. Uh, what did you discover about yourself in playing the role of Sir Lawrence Olivier? I...
0: Uh, there's one scene where uh, it was a sort of semi-improvised, where she, uh, Michelle comes in and she she has the uh, she's got to remember something from the um, she has to come in and say, "Gee, this is all right too," and um, she, repeatedly she says, "Gee, this is all right." He says, "It's too." Gee, this is all right. No, it's gee, this is all right too, and it sort of brings out the sort of um, whatever you might call it, the pedant in him, or just that's his choice to be accurate. And it was semi-improvised. I suppose I was slightly appalled at uh, my <laughs> the way I was able to kind of make up the sort of stuff directors say when you're trying to get an actor to do something they don't really want to do, or or when, frankly, you're, you're just... F- flailing around and you know you're using every trick in the book not that you necessarily know what that is but you were but you're going close to them and far away you're trying to be whispery you're moving in and you know when inside inside everything, saying this is terrible this is
2: dreadful there's no time it's
0: so bad it's so bad she's so awful it's so bad that was terrific that was <laughs> terrific it was because you know I, I you know praise you just I the honey rather than vinegar is what uh, I think is the way to go now, when I say all that inner frustration, you, you, don't have, you don't have real perspective on that. Because if you're directing something, the clock is ticking. Other people are doing stuff. And, and just sometimes, uh, I, I guess, you know, I, I, if I didn't feel his pain, I kind of knew sometimes. It's one of the great frustrations, particularly if you are an actor who directs. One of the great frustrations is when you can't find the way to talk to the actor. Mm. Or... If you aren't clever enough, which I often have not been clever enough, to just shut up and be patient. I, I found that the biggest lesson that I continue to try and learn about directing is say less, listen more, and get out of their way, get out of your way, and don't feel that pressure to have great thoughts or great insights. Directing is really just, a, it's about moving, it's not giving it necessarily to the actors, you come along, and then I point somewhere or direct it a little bit, you know, we do it together. It's taken me a long time to sort of sort of understand that rather than getting pointlessly frustrated that they're not doing it the way you might do it or whatever. And so I suppose I I recognize some of my own ridiculous frustrations in in a scene like that.
1: Uh, Another audience question from Olivia J. Fox. Uh, Well, you actually kind of addressed this, but uh, in the film, uh, Olivier says directing is the best job. Do you agree? And without naming names, have you ever had to deal with a difficult actor or actress? Go ahead and name names if you want.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, he did. You know, he did repeatedly say that he thought directing was the the best job in the world. But he was also uh, he was impatient about it. He didn't want to wait to do it. You know, he didn't make another film as a director after um the prince and the showgirl until indeed his own film of uh, three sisters where indeed he played the uh, very very beautifully uh and i guess uh i mean it's it is a it is an amazing job uh i must say i i yeah i had one experience of i i, I suppose to touch on what we were just referring to where i just i had what i would call a tricky actor um in as much as uh, well, you know, they were very talented, no question about that. But um, they were used to working in a different way. You know, sometimes people just play a few games and, you know, you've got to do a lot of guessing about. So they said black, but really they mean white. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they said something and they meant something else. And, and I, I could, basically my, my feeling about the atmosphere on a set or an rehearsal room is I, basically my experience is that it's better if there is relative harmony. So I am utterly unfit for sort of the games playing because I'm not any good at it I'm not I can't you know I I get surprised when people didn't say what they meant they meant something else and I had to there need to be some code you know Uh, so uh, so I really am flummoxed then I'm baffled Uh, um, so for instance I'll say to actors early on in in, like in in preparing for a film I'd say you know Um, I mean, if it applies, I mean, uh, I'd say, look, um, if there is an angle of your face that you really don't like, if you think I don't, but if you think you have a weirdly shaped earlobe and you never want me to shoot the right hand side of your face, then I simply won't. Um, you know, so tell me about it, or I'll say, listen, here's why it should be, and I'm going to show you on somebody else's earlobe how I'm going to light it, and see if you think. In fact, I'll even shoot yours and show you, and you can tell me. What I don't want is you to be unhappy, but what I mostly don't want is one day to be wanting to shoot that, and you tell me you feel really bad about the line in the scene at the end where she says whatever, and really, it's only about your right earlobe because that's. <laughs> and I've been, I've been in that situation where I go, what the fuck? And i just, it's hours of just, you know. And and it's only about shoot me from the other side, you know. That's okay. Vanity's okay. These are normal things. I want you to look your best, I want you to feel your best, you know. So so that's okay. And then maybe some point where I say, well, you want to look like that, but it really requires this. Is there a way to talk about that? But we can talk about it, because nobody else is listening. And actually you could have that, you could really have that very quietly in my ear, or you can say it to somebody else who's, you know, like a DP or something, but we can you know we can you know we can do it together as it were I want you to be the best you can be, and then i 'm excited you know i 'm excited about when actors are released like that uh, when they 're really when they 're often working at their best as an actor directing, I find that it 's just a high high, high level of job satisfaction to watch talented people doing what they do well particularly as you've heard me banging on about how, how interesting I find it to, for people to do invisible acting. So I'm in awe of it. I'm in awe, I'm in awe of it when I see people do it. Therefore, when I find a tricky actor who um, may be either needing some kind of conflict that I do understand and I respect is a way, whether conscious or not, of working. It's just not my way, and I'm not great at responding to it, but I'll put up with it. You know, I mean, it's just... just you know it's just a way of doing it but i've never found it to ultimately be better in terms of results sheer results does the person who is tricky Who uh, for me they'll get like a seven or an eight on a scale of one to ten, and if you had that with harmony, and I don't when I say harmony, I don't mean everybody brings in cookies every day and it's all (laughs) hugs and everything. That still includes shouting and passion and temperament and storming out the door. I don't care if you do that. If you care, I'll know. I'll know whether you care about it or whether you're pulling a fast one and doing some kind of, you know, kind of uh, weird thing you know so passion temper it's all fine that's all fine i can cope with that and i give as good as i get and i want people to be good but but uh, the you know the sort of little i don't know it comes out of insecurity comes out of fear or whatever and it completely throws me and in the particular instance i'm thinking of the ultimate result was the performance wasn't as good as she could have been or i could have directed it and ultimately it was i i must say it was my i didn't find a way of dealing with it i didn't find a way of being able to talk about it or discuss it with her. I just, I found myself uh, rather like Olivier in this rather unmanned, just felt rather wimpish and stupid. So, uh, anyway, I got over it. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly.
1: Um, Now I have some guesses in mind. You'll never get it. You'll (laughs) never
0: get it. You'll never get
1: it. Uh, Actually, this question doesn't have a uh, name on it, but wants to know what you think Olivier would have thought about your performance.
0: I have absolutely no idea. I know that um, when, when Derek Jacobi uh, played uh, Oedipus and Mr. Puff in Sheridan's The Critic, a double bill of roles in a single evening that Olivier had made famous in, in, uh, in the early 40s, where his famous cry as Oedipus when he's blinded at the end of the play was one that uh, apparently sent chills down the spine of the reviewers and people asked Olivier where had this sound come from, this incredible sound that he'd made, ear-piercing sound, and he said that he had once heard a mink trapped in a, in a trap dying and that what he had recreated at the end for Oedipus's cry of pain as he's blinded was the sound of the mink being caught in the trap. And for Mr Puff in The Critic, uh, an incredible... Um, uh, opposition to that kind of role where he's funny and camp and it's high comedy and all the rest of it. Um, And somebody asked him why he'd done those two parts together. Uh, And he said, I just wanted to show off. Uh, He said, simple vulgarity. I wanted to show off. Anyway... That was 1941 or something, and nobody ever done these two parts again. They'd never done them together. Olivier had simply said, you'll never do them again. They've been done definitively. No one ever plays <laughs> Mr. Puff in The Critic and Oedipus in The Same Evening. It doesn't happen because I've done it, and I've taken it off the board, as it were. <laughs> in
2: 1972,
0: Derek Jacobi leaves the National Theatre Company, and his first job away from the National Theatre, where he's been there for eight years, uh, played uh, Cassio in Othello and, and then a whole ton of parts, was a great star in the National Theatre. He goes to the Birmingham Repertory Theatre and his first job is to play a double bill of Mr Puff in The Critic and Oedipus. First time it's been done since Olivier did it. And on the first night, the telegram from Olivier arrived at Derek Jackery's uh-huh. dressing room with two words, which were cheeky bugger. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> so...
0: I suspect at the very least I'd be getting the cheeky bugger remark.
1: Yeah. I want to thank you so much for, I know how busy you are, for coming out tonight. Oh, thank uh, thank you. you guys for being such a great audience. And congratulations on the other hand. Thanks very much, guys.
2: Thank, thank you. Thanks very much. Thank,
0: thank you for listening to the SAG-AFTRA Foundation's Conversations Podcast. If you appreciated what you heard, please support us with a review or donation. And reach out to us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at sag After Found. We'd love to hear from you.